We're going to do something just a, a little different than what we normally do. It's not like a crazy, weird thing, so don't, don't feel awkward. Uh, but we're going to read a passage of Scripture together, uh, out loud. So, so when I say we, I mean all of us. It's not the royal we. We're all going to do it. Um, well, I can't force you. You do what you want. But we're going to have it up on the, the screen, and uh, we're going to read it together. Uh, we're actually going to read this passage of Scripture several times throughout the message because it's one that I think we need to kind of sink deeply. You know, it's not one of those things. If you have your Bibles, you can read it on the text that we have on the screen that'd probably be easiest, especially if you have a different translation. That'd be funny. Exodus chapter 34, 6 and 7. So we'll read this together. And and just real quick, so you know the he here, because we're coming in the middle of a thought. This is God. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, most of that you were probably like, this is good. I like this. This makes me feel comfortable and happy. And then we got to a sentence in there and some of you were like, eh. Uh, let's hit the brakes. I'm not sure that that part makes me feel comfortable and happy. And we're going to talk about that part in this series. We won't talk about it today. So we're just going to let you live in that discomfort today. But we will talk about it in this series. Um, And and what we want to know, the premise that we want to kind of surround ourselves with in this message is this idea that your life Your current reality, your finances, your marriage, your health, your job, your choices are a reflection of what you believe about the character of God. Now, that sounds like a big claim because some of you are like, you know, yes, I believe in God, but I'm not sure he really has a big impact on what I do when I, you know, go to the gas station and whether or not I buy a Diet Coke or a Coke. I'm not sure that he has a big impact on exactly how I fill in the spreadsheet at my work. I'm not sure he has a huge impact on exactly what activity our family does on a Friday night. I'm not sure he has this huge impact, but this is, this is true whether you believe it or not. It's one of those, I love these truths that are true even if you don't believe them, that your life, your current reality is a reflection of what you believe about the character of God, your current reality. Uh, and I want, to, uh, I want to prove that to you here in a second. Have I, have I told you guys, you know, sometimes when you've been preaching at a place for a while, you kind of forget, did I use this illustration? Remember in youth group where you'd hear the same story like 12 times? Uh, have I ever told you guys about getting my wisdom teeth removed? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to listen to Steve because he was here in the first service. Okay, no, I haven't. Okay, so let me tell you real quick. I... Anna's like, maybe, but Anna, you, you're a long timer. But see, the fact that you said maybe means that I could tell it again. It's good. Just pretend you had never heard this story before. I got my wisdom teeth removed way late in life. Normally, it's a procedure you have done when you're uh, a teenager, young adult. I was way too late to have it done. But, you know, dentistry is not something that's cheap. Insurance doesn't always uh, cover it. So I find, they said, you got to get this done. Went in, and uh, the dentist said, okay, good morning. We've got two options. You can either go under or you can be awake for it. And I said, well, <laughs> when you're poor, you're, you're like, well, how much is, which is which? How, how much is going under? Uh, and they said, going under is this much. Oof, that's way too expensive. You know, what's my cheapest option? Well, you can be awake the whole time and we'll give you a, uh, a Walkman with headphones and that is tuned. 
this is true, it was tuned to Rush Limbaugh. I, it was just on and going. And so the whole time I was awake, and I would have changed the station, but I was so out of it with whatever local anesthesia they gave me that I couldn't even change the station. So I was just sitting there having this, it's a violent procedure, and I won't go into the details, but it's gross. And if you get a chance to go under, please go under, because it is not worth being awake whatever amount of money. I get done with the procedure, and they say, okay, sir, your wisdom teeth are gone. Here are your keys. And I'm like, are you sure I should be driving? Because I don't feel like I should be driving. I didn't say that because I couldn't speak. I could only mumble. My mouth was incredibly sore. My entire face was sore. It's a true story. I had been, like, drooling because there was so much anesthesia, so there were, like, drool spots on my shirt. I know it's gross. Sorry, it's a weird sermon illustration, but you'll, you'll see why I t- tell you that here in a second. So uh, they gave me the keys, and I'm getting in the car, and I'm literally starting the car thinking, I probably shouldn't be driving, but I don't have anybody to come pick me up, so I kind of give it a minute, start the car, and then I drive to the pharmacy because they had given me a prescription for extra strength, you know, whatever, ibuprofen. It wasn't anything special. It was just this extra strength stuff. So I go to the pharmacy, and I'm still drool-splattered shirt, still mumbly. I've got, you know, uh, gauze in my cheeks, so I look a little bit like a squirrel, and I'm drooling. And I go up to the pharmacist, and I can't talk, but I just kind of mumble and hand her the little slip, and she gives me a once-over. She immediately judges me. This is the clerk. And then she goes and gets the pharmacist. Now, this is an exception. Most pharmacists are not like this. All the pharmacists I know are very wonderful people. (laughs) But this pharmacist, this clerk, went up to the pharmacist and said, in front of me, he's special needs. (laughs) In front of me. Now, they may not have said special needs, but whatever she said, it was something implying that he needs, like, extra care and attention. So the pharmacist came over, which is probably true, right? (laughs) Judging by the drooling. And I tried to explain that I didn't, wasn't special needs. But have you ever tried to like mumble something? It's just confirming for them what they already thought. So the pharmacist explains to me and really, she was like, don't chew these pills. (laughs) Okay. All right. Sure. Take them with like, really? I was like, even if I am special needs, I'm not deaf. That wasn't the problem here. The deal is that what you believe about a person influences how you interact with them. Are you trustworthy? Are you good? Are you safe? Will they actually tell you secrets that they want you to keep? What you believe about a person dictates how you interact with them. What you believe about God, this is important, what you believe about God not only dictates how you interact with him, it's true, it does, but it dictates how you interact with everything. And that's the difference between our belief about God and our belief about other humans. What we believe about God dictates how we interact with everything, job, family, money, humanity, uh, how we think, how we take in information in the world, what we think matters, what we think is important, what we pursue, what we prioritize. A.W. Tozer is an author, well-known author, and he wrote in this book called Knowledge of the Holy. This is in the first chapter of the book, so you don't have to read very far if you're not interested. But in the very first chapter of the book, he writes this idea that I think is absolutely true. He captures the essence of what we're communicating here. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And then he goes on later in that chapter to say, he says, because it can predict with certainty your spiritual future. 
What you believe about God, about the character of God, that's, this is so incredibly important, and it's not something that we give a lot of time and attention to. So, so think about this. You, you know this. Do I believe that God is good and that he will provide for me, or do I constantly stress about having enough? Do I believe that I am inherently valuable and I have been given my worth by being created in the image of God? Or do I have to constantly prove my worth to myself and the people around me? Do I believe that God's moral judgments about life are right and sin are right? Or do I figure I just got to try to figure it out for myself and decide what things I will obey and what things I will reject? Do I believe God is right in his moral judgments? And everything I believe about the character of God has an impact on my daily life and my daily choices. Let's put a finer point on this, and this is really kind of the part of the sermon that you would normally save for the end, but we're going to do it at the beginning, and it's this. Judging by some of our actual life choices, we do not think too highly of God and His abilities. Judging by some of the actual things that we do, we don't think very highly of God. Some of the ways that you spend your time and you spend your money and the ways that you interact with your, your spouse and your children and your neighbors and your work, you don't think very highly of what God has asked you to do. Now, we would never say that out loud, but the problem is, is our actions speak much louder than our words. Our actions reveal our deepest priorities and what's truly going on in our hearts. And we don't necessarily trust the character of God to provide, and we feel like we've got to provide. We feel like we've got to maybe take, cut some corners here and there to make sure that we have enough and we get our slice of the pie because we're afraid that if we're too generous and we're too sacrificial, then God won't be able, we won't have enough at the end of the day because we don't trust the character of God. I think what we need to do is we need to learn what we believe about God truly, what we believe, and what we should believe about God. So how does God describe himself? So we're going to read the first time in Scripture where God actually says, this is who I am. This is my, this is my resume. This is my Instagram bio. If I, you know, those icebreaker games that you, you know, everybody's like, oh, this is the worst part. And I don't know, somebody says, hey, describe yourself in two sentences. This is God's two sentences. This is who I am, God says. This is out of the mouth of God. Everything up to this point has been someone describing God or has been a circumstance in which we can ascertain aspects of who God is. But this is God from his own mouth. And, and secondly, the, the what we're going to read is the most quoted passage in the Hebrew Bible. In other words, you know, it's like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament in that it's quoted again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. So I think that's kind of cool. It's Exodus chapter 34, 6 and 7. And he, Yahweh, he, God, passed in front of Moses. There's a cool backstory here that we're going to talk about in the future. Uh, but he passed in front of Moses proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, that's his name, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Now, normally, if I were God's PR guy, I would stop there. I would have said, this is a good place to kind of like end uh, the explanation. You know, God, you just went a little too far when you go to the next sentence, because in verse 7, he says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Like, God, can we just leave that out? Do we really need to highlight that? Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. 
So what your great-great-grandpa was doing, evidently you're getting in trouble for. You're having to pay the consequences for. Now that makes us uncomfortable. If you're honest and you're thoughtful, that makes us uncomfortable to think, wait a second, what in the world did I have to do with my great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather? That doesn't sound fair to me. So there's stuff that we like in this passage, right? I like a compassionate God. I appreciate a God who's slow to anger. I can get behind that. Faithful, loving, great. Things that make us uneasy, I don't know about this punishing generations thing. Now, like I said, we will talk about that, but it won't be today. (laughs) So don't sit here expecting a resolution like, hey, what's the explanation there? We will get to that in the future. And I think it's a valuable, there's a reason why God said, I'm going to include that in my explanation of who I am. We're calling this series Strange God, um, and we're calling it Strange God for two reasons. One is because if we're fair and honest in our reading of Scripture, God is strange. He's other. He's different. Part of what the concept of holy means is that God is other and different. And there's ways that he is unrelatable and that he is mysterious like Caleb talked about last week. There's ways that God is strange. Yes, he describes himself as a father caring for his children. Yes, he gives us an image of himself through Christ. But there are many ways in which God seems distant and other and difficult to understand. Just read Ezekiel chapter 1. Read Daniel chapter 10. Read the book of Revelation. Those are some strange visions of who God truly is. God is a strange God. Uh, But the other reason that we're calling it strange God is because in this section of scripture, God is reintroducing himself to his people. Up to this point, um, well, if you rewind about 430 years, but God had interacted with Abraham and he had interacted with Isaac, and he had interacted with, uh, or Jacob and Isaac and Joseph. He had interacted with these, these, you know, heads of these families, but then they went down to Egypt, and it says for about 430 years, or not about, exactly 430 years, Genesis, or uh, Exodus 12 says, that as far as we know, they hadn't heard much from God. And so remember the story, again, speaking of strange, you know, you talked about this last week with Caleb, when God reveals himself to Moses in a burning bush, like, again, like, if you, were, if you were to guess how God would show up, is that what you think God would do? No, not at all. And then remember, what does Moses ask this burning bush? Well, uh, who am I supposed to tell all these people is sending me? And he's like, I, you've got to tell me who you are so that I can tell them who you are. And then, of course, that's the section of Scripture we get the whole explanation of God's name. So, strange God, I think it fits. I admit... Corrine, and I had heard about her before I met her, um, but I did not make a good first impression on Corrine. Well, I guess I don't know. Did I make a good first impression? Eh, yeah. Yeah, that's worse than a bad first impression, right? It feels like that's worse. Uh, well, the reason I don't think I made a good first impression is it's, I had, that day, I think that day or the day before, I had asked my roommate to give me a haircut. <laughs> Again, when you don't have money, you just like desperate measures. And so he's cutting my hair, and I'm sitting there, and he's, you know, and he's like, oops. And I'm like, what are you talking about, oops? You know, like, and then by the time we got done, he was just goofing around, and he had like left this patch here, and the rest was shaved. And I was like, man, you just got to shave the whole thing now. This is terrible. This is, 
Some guys can pull off the shaved head look, you know? Dwayne Johnson can pull it off. Bruce Willis can pull it off. Patrick Doherty cannot pull off the shaved head look. He doesn't look tough with a shaved head. So, uh, but that was when I first met Kareem. But the, the point is, I don't think I made a good first impression. And somehow it ended up working out, you know, she overcame. But I had some uphill work to do. But if you take a peek at the very first impression that God is giving this people group, remember, he's, in, he's revealed himself to individuals in this family, but this is the first time he's revealed himself to this people group. And the first impression is not going to go well. Um, so let's rewind from Exodus 34 back to the beginning of the book of Exodus, and you're going to want to look at Exodus chapter 6, because God is talking to Moses, burning bush, and he's saying, here are the marching orders for how you are to set up the introductions between myself and these people. I want you to reintroduce us, so here's how you're going to do it. Verse 6, therefore, say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, which is good news because things aren't good for the nation right at the moment. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with the uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. I want you to see one line in particular early on. He says, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. This is kind of interesting to think about. I will, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. I think there's some echoes for us to consider here as we think about this idea. First of all, it has been a long time since God has interacted with his people, at least the records we have. We don't know, maybe there was some stuff going on behind the scenes. It literally says 430 years since the last record we have of God interacting with his people. 430 years. Does anybody know what was happening 430 years ago? Yeah, well, uh, Copernicus was just trying to convince people that the earth actually revolved around the sun. You know, there was this solar system like that 430 years ago. Um, they were still exploring like, oh, hey, there's a whole ocean over here. Or the world is this. And I mean, 430 years ago is a long time ago. Uh, I did a little, as you get older, you seem to be, I seem to be more interested in genealogical uh, research. I, I think that's a feature of getting older. I don't know. At least it has been for me. And I've definitely, maybe, maybe it's just my personality. I could get back to about 140 years. So it's my great, 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 great something grandfather. You're talking about a great grandfather with 17 greats in 430 years. So imagine, do you think these people, they didn't have a temple, they didn't have a Bible, they didn't have like, they didn't have a songbook, they didn't have a gathering every Sunday. You, how did they stay in contact with this God? Can you imagine that their connection to God began to be frayed and weak and God just felt like this distant echo? Like maybe that was something that was real a long time ago, but not anymore. And, and the other thing that I think we need to keep in mind when we read about God introducing himself to his people, they're all slaves. And that, I mean, that's troubling enough as it is, but they had this conception of God's being connected to geography and power. And because 
there, because they were in, they were slaves in the land of Egypt, the Egyptian gods were powerful, the Hebrew god was not powerful. So the Egyptian gods were in charge, the Hebrew god, I don't know, I don't know where this guy's been. So you imagine it just look, it did not look good for Yahweh. Reintroductions being made. Look at Exodus chapter 6, verse 9. Moses reported all of this to the Israelites. Hey, God's coming. He's going to rescue you. It's going to be good. Hang in there. Uh, but they did not listen because of their discouragement and harsh labor, which, which is true. Sometimes when you try to tell people about God and how good he is and then their life circumstances don't bear that out, it can be tough to hear that message. Over the next 28 chapters, God is going to do some work, and he's going to show them what kind of God he is. Um, and many of you have, have had, he's going, to, he's going to reveal his character is what he's going to do. Any of you ever had to be a character reference for somebody, like a job application or legal circumstance? I've had to do it a lot with youth group kids, and, uh, you know, hundreds of them over the years. So, you know, that's one of, I guess, the main job descriptions for youth ministers. You get to be their job, job reference, like, hey, I'm trying to get hired at McDonald's. Can you give me a job reference? And I would say about 90% of the employers don't call. And then about 10% of the employers, it's like, oh, I, they called and they drilled down and I don't want to lie. <laughs> so, like, well, they didn't always show up to youth group on time. I'm sure they'll be much better at McDonald's, you know. But the character reference at an employer is they're trying to discover what is this person like? Are they going to be a self-starter? Are they going to get along well with others? Are they going to work together? Are they going to be good for this company? And, and we want to know what, what kind of God, what kind of character reference does our God have? Who is our God? And when God describes himself, he says, I am the compassionate and gracious God, Exodus 34, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. I maintain love to thousands, and I forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, and he describes himself in the third person. I think it's interesting. Yet he, but he's talking himself, does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents of the third and fourth generation. I want us to understand the crucial importance of what we're trying to get at here. Scripture repeatedly tells us that the most important thing that you can do with your life, the most vital thing, the most valuable thing that you can do with your life is to love God. Repeatedly. And that's, I, that's something maybe doesn't make sense to us. Like, how is that the most important thing? How is the mo that the most valuable thing? It seems like there should be more important things that I could do. Like, couldn't I find a cure for cancer? Or couldn't I save a bunch of orphans? Or what is it about loving God that is the most important thing I can do with my life? And we're going to explore that. But to do that with any authenticity, we have to really know who God is. And some of you have some deep-seated misconceptions of who God is. You have those. So do I. You inherited them from your parents or from your childhood preacher or from your life experiences, and they're just rooted in you, and they play themselves out in your life in ways that you don't even completely understand. Can I, can I give you a silly example of that? Um, and some of you have things like this. I've talked to some of you, but this is my silly example of this. I, I assumed God didn't want me to be happy. And maybe I should rephrase this. I still often assume God doesn't want me to be happy, which is a, that's a terrible thing to assume about God. Like, God's got to be so frustrated with me that I'm like, hey, what are you talking about? Like, of course, I created you. Of course, I want you to experience joy. But here's why. 
because Jesus repeatedly, Scripture repeatedly talks about like self-sacrifice. Jesus said, you have to deny yourself to follow me. And so I thought, well, if I had to make a choice between self-denial and something I want, then the thing I want must be wrong. So let me play this out so you can kind of understand the, the ridiculous thinking. If I want ice cream, but Jesus says you need to deny yourself, then I have to be suspicious of that desire for ice cream because I'm supposed to deny myself as a good Christian. So therefore, in any choice like that, God would always want me to do the thing that reflects self-denial. Does that make sense? You can see how the twisted logic got there. Now, there are, there are totally times where we need to be very, very suspicious of our desires, right? A absolutely. Jeremiah talks about like the heart is deceitful above all things. Absolutely. But Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Nothing should re be rejected, uh, Paul tells us in Timothy, if it's received with gratitude. So you know what I would do? Oof, I want ice cream or whatever. I want ice cream, but self-denial is the right thing to do. Here's what I would do. I would eat the ice cream and constantly feel guilty about it as I was doing it and later after I did it. I'd just feel guilt. I would do the bad thing or quote-unquote bad thing, but just feel guilty about it. Do you think God wanted me to feel guilty about eating a bowl of ice cream? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. But do you see how my understanding of the character of God had this weird impact? And I would like to tell you, oh, that's some silly thing. Patrick's grown out of it. I still struggle with that. I still struggle with like, oh, that sounds like a fun thing to do. I think I'd really enjoy that. And there's this voice in me that says, oh, if you would enjoy it, that means you should probably not do it. How? What's going on there? I have a misapprehension of the character of God deeply seated in myself somehow. I, I want to root that out and get the real idea of who God truly is down in there so that can affect my choices and impact my choices. All right, I want to say this. Pay attention to the assumptions you have about who God is. Maybe if you start thinking like, oh man, that's what I thought about God, write it down. Why do you think that? Why do you believe that? Why do you think that that's the case? Uh, when you spend time in prayer or if you spend time reading in the mornings, which I hope you do, everybody should do, you should jot down what you see about the character of God reflected in those pages. When you experience something in life, whether it be good or bad, you should write down what do I feel or experience about the character of God based on those circumstances. And then you should come back next week because we're going to dig into how God describes himself. And I really do think this is both foundational and uh, transformational. I told you that we're going to be talking about elemental things, not elementary things, elemental things that really make a difference in who we are and how we live in the world. So I'm going to invite our praise team to come back up and sing some more, but I hope that you have a different appreciation for the type of God, the character of God, the person of God to whom you're singing this morning.